In West Hill, Philadelphia, born and sorry, wrong, no, wrong, wrong one, that man. Listeners, welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Moorpork. It's good for us to be back. I hope it's good for you to be back. I'm Colm and he's... Steve. How is everybody yeah. here? Um, very, yeah. They can hear They can hear us, but they can't respond. Ah. Not immediately. <laughs> I've, I've explained before how podcasts work, but <laughs> we don't have time for this right now. Hang on. I'll, um, I'll study the concept again when we're off the air. <laughs> um... So yes, uh, we are back again. Um, absolutely delighted to see how many people were clamoring to hear us uh, read The Truth, um, which is our book for today. Um, just on a side note, um, uh, so I'm over here in the counterweight continent now myself, over in Japan. Uh, we were worried for a while that it wasn't going to happen because, well, there's a lot of difficulties recording when we're not in the same room. Um, we at the moment we're recording on some paltry Not to mention equipment. the same time zone. Huh? Not to mention the same time zone. Yeah, that too. That too. There's a lot of difficulties involved in it. Um, at the moment we're recording on our phones, so if uh, you notice a bit of a dip in quality compared to earlier videos, it is something we're going to try and fix because I'm going to try and buy a microphone while I'm over here. And Colin, I think you're doing the same back there. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm recording on my Zoom as uh, we recorded the, um, the earlier episode, so hopefully the audio at my end should be good. Yep. So, I mean, Finger- if the listeners can't hear you very well, but hey, no loss, really. Yeah, that's all. People only really hear come to hear your like caramel, chocolatey, velvety voice, really. So it's nothing to do with me or anything I say, unless like they really want a laugh track that counts as conversation, you know, so... <laughs> That's my lovely warm brown voice, as Alan Partridge said about Roger Moore. <laughs> you're, you're there for the eye candy. Yeah, which every podcast needs, as we all know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> crucial. Um, yeah, yeah, we just would like to say thanks so much to everyone who, who got in touch about, uh, I suppose, concerned about the, pod- um, the future of the podcast. And I really uh, apologize for, for not replying when, as Steve said, plans were kind of up in the air and I put off getting back to anyone until I could say something definite and then it just sort of fell from the outer reaches of my mind with a, a whole lot of other stuff. Um, I, I had a boat of his head going on in life, but we are, we are back now and uh, hopefully we'll be back to making podcast episodes regularly and uh, replying to your um comments and emails you know at least within the calendar year that you've uh, got in touch with us at least hmm. i think it's safe to say that we're probably both i don't know about you colin but I, after reading the truth i'm pretty excited to get back into it um because we don't actually have that much more to go i mean we could def we could pull this off we could do it um, it's just about crazy enough to work i know it is so Hey, we might as well dive into it. Let's talk about yeah, yeah. the truth. Okay, so uh, we'll, we'll just uh, recount the plot for people. It's we've got. I have it written here. If you'd like me to just read it out. Oh, if you'd like, I, I, I was going to. I thought we we're going to talk through it, but no. Let's be professional. Let's be professional about it. Professional way. <laughs> right. Okay. Well. Okay. So, 
for people who have read the truth, uh, you'll remember this. Otherwise, here is a basic outline of the plot. William de Word is working as a scribe in Ankh-Morpork when, by a twist of fate, he encounters a group of dwarves who have discovered movable type. They plan to start a printing business and William de Word inadvertently ends up selling the first batch of newspapers on the disc while in their company. The journalism bug takes hold of William and he begins printing newspapers on a daily basis. As the papers get bigger, he takes on more staff, including a novice journalist named Sakarissa, a vampire photographer named Otto, and a complaints department encompassing troll named Rocky. During this time, they are forced to compete with a rival tabloid paper set up by the Guild of Engravers, which is full of false news stories. While this is happening, we learn there is a plan in motion to depose the patrician Lord Veterinary. A group of concerned citizens, all of whom wear cloaks and spend a lot of time in shadows, have hired the new firm to assist in the matter. The new firm consists of Mr. Pin, a calculating murderer, and Mr. Tulip, an extremely large and angry art connoisseur. They use a doppelganger to shock the patrician and stage a scene wherein the patrician appears to have tempted murder and embezzlement. The plan doesn't quite work as the patrician's dog, Wuffles, witnesses and escapes the scene. The new firm don't see a, this as a problem until Mr. Slant, from the Guild of Lawyers, informs them there is a werewolf in the City Watch who can talk to dogs. Despite a very tenuous relationship, the word shares with Commander Vimes... Uh, excuse me. Despite a very tenuous relationship DeWord shares with Commander Vimes, DeWord partially assists in the investigation. However, after two encounters with the new firm, the second of which results in Pin and Tulip's death, he discovers that his father is involved. He withholds this information from the watch, instead confronting his father himself. After a heated argument in which DeWord reveals his life was in danger, Lord DeWord eventually agrees to walk away from the city. The paper reveals the truth about the patrician and how he was framed, despite how few people seem to care, and the word continues his work with Sakarissa on the newspaper. So, that is a basic synopsis of the plot, and I guess the only question to ask, well, the first of many questions to ask, is Colin, what did you think of it? Um, I, I, I really liked the truth. For one, it was the first Pratchett book I've read since we've done this telephone uh, way back what seems like a very long time ago now so it's just really refreshing to go back to to Pratchett and just how readable and electric and energetic his, his writing is but what we said mm. with Fifth Elephant that in many ways it felt like a sort of like an ending for a part of the Discworld in some ways with uh, you know it, it, it's not the last watch novel as we'll find out but it sort of feels like it could be um, mm. And but it was sort of a new beginning with the clacks modernising the disc and, and here you you really have that uh, team being taken forward in, in, in many ways with the invention of the newspaper <clears throat> modernising disc world and a new main character like I think I, I know uh, William is a one-off main character we never get another he pops up here and there but we never get another book with um, solely from or mainly from his point of view but I mean, I think he must be the first new main character since, I don't know, like Susan and Soul Music, maybe? Something like that, anyway. I mean, the first, yeah, the first main character, absolutely. And I know what you mean. I mean, while I was reading this, I remember the first time I read it, even then, and especially now with the entire library, the entire Discworld library for context, it does feel like a watershed moment. It feels like this is the point where we've gone past Discworld as 
fantasy novels to more modernist fantasy satire. This, I mean, it was always there, but it's it feels exceptionally strong in this. Yeah, book. it's sort of being cemented here. Um, I think most clearly in that conversation Veterinary has with William and the dwarves when he shows up to the press and he starts asking about, you know, oh, is this going to turn out to be some occult business where the things from the Dungeon Dimensions will spill out and he actually cites soul music and um, yeah, uh, moving pictures um, and he seems to expect it to go along those lines but of course it doesn't <laughs> this is one that sticks and I, do, um, I suppose the uh, the press has a sort of mundane kind of uh, magic of its own um, there's a lot of mm. metaphors throughout about the William thinks of the printing press itself being like a big animal that's needing to get fed and just like spews out news but it's not the same kind of uh, thing we saw. The sort of almost like Lovecraftian element to soul music and moving pictures. Actually, just when you say that now, a thought has just popped into my head. Do you think there's a parallel between the word uh, thinking of the printing press as an animal that needs to be fed and Terry Pratchett's like fans who are looking for new works, <laughs> considering how different this feels? Like... I don't know if there was a big gap between this and the last one, but it feels like there was. So I wonder if this was almost like a fan appeasement sort of thing with a sly little commentary towards the people he was writing to. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure because he was a journalist uh, originally, Pratchett. So I'd imagine a lot of what he's pulling from here is from his own uh, experience as a, as a journalist. But at the same time, I, I, I it's... You, you wouldn't think of him as a writer that would feel that pressure in that way because he's so prolific. You know, your mm. Discworld fans would kind of rarely have times to grouse about waiting for another book before he's released one. And yet at the same time, it may be that he was only so prolific because he felt an amount of pressure, because he felt that he had to keep knocking him out and knocking him out. And yeah, maybe. His style of writing suggests that he's just having fun with it, but, you know, it takes a really talented and probably hard-working writer to make it appear as natural as it does. Mm -hmm. So there might be something in that, that he actually, maybe he felt a little bit obligated, maybe like he was saying something in the plot of this about how he saw his fans. But what's interesting is the way that it ends, that, you know, the word, he doesn't feel obligated, it's just what he does, it's what he is in the end. Yeah, it it reminds me a lot of actually when... um is it the end of Men at Arms ends with Vimes meant to be or is it Jingo or Men at Arms or one of the early watch ones ends with like Vimes is meant to be off duty and then just a crime happens and he runs off to chase after the criminal like that reminded me a lot how here the ward and Sacharissa decide to go for lunch and then they see something happening and immediately begin reporting on it yeah yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I thought the relationship bet- between De Word and Vimes was very interesting, actually, because this is one of the first times we've seen a novel in which Vimes features relatively prominently, but he's not the main yeah, character. Yeah. And as you know, as I'm sure all our listeners know, like Vimes is probably both of our favorite characters in the Discworld novels. So it's interesting to see him in sort of the same way uh, Terry Pratchett always describes other people how they see him mm-hmm. they always see Vimes as a problem like an obstruction in some sort of way and we kind of get a bit of that I imagine it was fairly difficult for Terry Pratchett to write that to write Vimes as an obstruction for our main character and someone not necessarily unlikable but not necessarily as 
wholly likable as he is when he is the protagonist in the book. Yeah, um, well, apparently this originally began as a watch book when he was writing it, and then mm. somewhere along the line, uh, you know, became a, a, a well a standalone in terms of its protagonist at least. But I, I think the use of Imes here is fascinating because mm. I think it, it does allow you to see his flaws and, and the flaws that we've highlighted in, I think, in, in The Fifth Elephant, of that kind of um, his propensity to just resort to sort of brute force bullying tactics because he's so sure he's doing it for the, you know, the, the ultimate right or the, the greater good and that he's only bullying the bully, so to speak. And when... when when we're in uh, his books, the watch books, we as the reader generally share those feelings with him because we're in his head and we can see that like, oh yeah, he is, he you know, does ultimately have the right motivations and these people are, you know, assholes that aren't going to listen to reason. But seeing him from the outside makes you realize that if you're anyone else in Ike Morpork, coming on the wrong end of those, uh, that sort of um, rough-handed, approach from him and the watch would seem really off-putting and mm. yeah to, uh, and his whole uh, the idea of i suppose the, the press the free press holding authorities like a police force and politicians accountable and how the police force and politicians aren't necessarily you know they're even the most fair-minded policemen and politicians aren't necessarily going to just wholeheartedly embrace that idea and they're going to have to their toes are going to have to be stepped on i think that's really interesting mm. but i think what's interesting about it too is just um we, we usually mention that you know most discord books you could read as a complete standalone having never uh, any of the others and you would probably get a lot out of it anyway and i feel that this is probably true of this one but this one also um, works a lot better if you're already familiar with the, particularly the watch and the, the Ank Morpork set books because it uses a lot of uh, the expectations and assumptions and foreknowledge we would have accrued as readers of those books to toy mm. with our expectations here like I, I think William is um allowed to be a much more interesting flawed character than this Pratchett standalone protagonists usually are um, they're usually quite kind of you know well-meaning but ineffective and semi-colorless uh, like um, you know Tepic or Victor and people like that like they're in interesting situations and they're fun to read about but they don't they don't have the uh, I don't know the color of a Vimes or a Wetterwax or you know Susan or Tiffany mm. Aching or anything like that or even Rincewind. But Although because it's, it's funny you say that. Sorry, go on. Sorry, do, do yeah. I just interrupt you for one second? It's funny that you say that because I remember several times when anyone would mention the truth, I always found myself thinking that the main character wasn't William DeWord at all, but I always confused him with Moist oh, yeah, Quick. Yeah. But I think that might be something to do with what we were saying about, you know, coming into the um, uh, Discworld series at the point where it starts becoming modernist mm-hmm. fantasy satire as opposed to just like mod- uh, or fantasy satire because uh, you know Moist von Lipwig is very much the spearhead for all the really modern themes in the later Discworld books and I sort of feel like a lot of the time he- William de Word was a proto Moist yeah, von Lipwig yeah. because you know Moise von Lipwig, basically his job in three novels, as far as I can tell, is to spearhead first the post office, 
then uh, what Texas. was it? The the bank, the bank, the making money, and then it was raising steam, which I think is the railroads. Yeah. You know, it's just like pinpointing like what are modernist ideals and how can I work them into a Discworld novel? And the newspaper, free speech, kind of feels like it should be in there as well, but for some reason, Moist von Lipwig just isn't there. So yeah, it's an it's inter- I feel like. I personally think that I always felt like William DeWord was proto uh, Moist van Lipwig, but what do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, it's Giz, and again, Moist is probably a more colourful character, but I do think it's, it's interesting how, probably unintentionally, it does form a sort of um, neat continuity whereby William comes in, is partly responsible for setting up the first uh, newspaper, and Veterinary is quite suspicious of how this will turn out. Again, he, he cites the previous disasters with these, uh, you know, I suppose, in what the readers would think of as intrusions from the modern world. But he... Um, but also he has that conversation at the start with Hugh Nong Ridcully where he talks about the world modernising. So Veterinary mm. sort of seems sort of on the fence where he's aware of the need to modernise and the inevitability of modernization, but he's also seen it go wrong so often. So he dumps it all in DeWard's lap, and DeWard does it here, and then in the later books, it's Veterinary who's recruiting Litwig and forcing him into these things, you know? Um, he's a lot mm. less cautious about uh, modernization. He, you know, he seems to have picked out Mice as the, the right man for the job to force these things through, having seen that William was able to set up the, the newspaper without, you know, calling... Uh, Lovecraftian monsters down on Ike Morfork. But I suppose what I meant earlier yeah. about William's character is that like he's quite flawed in a lot of ways. Like he's quite uh, um he I suppose he's very much contrasted as like he's a upper class and he's a much more like intellectual type than a lot of the people around him. Um so you know like that you'd kind of have maybe some sympathy for him as a sort of outsider. Uh, but the book never um, never falls into the simplistic trap of painting him as like the only sane man in a kind of mad, crazy Ank Morpork. Like when he's talking to, mm. I think it's, it's Vimes at the end, and he says some comments like, like Vimes is reading the paper, and he says, I could help you with the longer words. And you read that and you think, oh, oh yeah. condescending fuck, you know. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> and, and I think he, he makes he makes some other comments like that throughout about people's reading skills. But for one, it's sort of it's probably not the kind of thing he would think of as insulting because, you know, the book does make clear this has been his job up until then has been to like read and write letters for people around him. So mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of automatic. Um, but the fact that he's doing that with a character we're familiar with in Vimes and have sympathies with sort of removes us from uh, just seeing William as like an audience surrogate, only sane man in a mad world. Instead, we see him as a character who's, you know, well-meaning but flawed. Um, mm. And I did, you see the, sorry, the thing as well with that great exchange with uh, Vimes and William where Vimes says about like, Oh, you know, your boss is the truth. Is the truth going to, uh, you know, fire you? Is the truth going to discipline you if something goes wrong? Like, everyone's accountable to someone. And he, I mean, he's exactly right. And I suppose it shows the difference between the uh, high minded, um, like, principles and the, the, 
and the more um, mundane realities of job accountability. But it's also ironic because in earlier books, I think you have people making similar complaints about Vimes and his attitude to the law, like people like Rust and mm. the other Ank Morpork uh, upper classes will, you know, are disgusted at the fact that like Vimes is the watchman and he should just do what he's told. And instead he seems to regard the law as some kind of, you know, big shining thing in the sky that uh, he's going to follow no matter mm. what. So there's a sort of, neither of them come out and say it, but with, with Vimes and William, they're, they're somewhat similar in, in a lot of ways in their kind of commitment to this greater cause that occasionally sees them bypassing, um, uh, conventional like you know ethics or morals or niceties in search of this uh, bigger thing and it you know it doesn't always make them nice people or likable people in, in every situation but it makes them complex and interesting ones mm. I always find it funny that um, it's interesting trying to contemplate what kind of person Vimes would be friends with if any you know, um, I think one of the best examples we saw was in Jingo when he met up with, um, I forget his name now, but it was basically his doppelganger in oh, a way, the policeman. 71-hour Ahmed. Yeah, yeah. And like that kind of felt, you know, it wasn't really so much a friendship. It was more like, it felt an awful lot like that moment in the movie Heat where, you know, uh, De Niro and Al Pacino were sitting across, across <laughs> each other and going, oh, we're not so different, you and I, you yeah. know, um, but, uh, you know, by the same token, you couldn't really see them like being friends, friends. But with the word and Vimes, it seems like there is something of that relationship happening. But Vimes has always seemed so wary of that kind of relationship that anyone who kind of shares his ideals is someone who needs to be watched, I think, is his view. Because he's so suspicious of himself as a person that anyone who is similar to him is suspicious, yeah. you know. That's so, so um, but. Another thing um, what's interesting, and we have to stop talking about Vimes now because I know we do this nearly every <laughs> single time he shows up in a book. But one thing I will say is we were talking about how interesting it was to see Vimes in, um, in a book where he wasn't the main character and encounter him as other people see him. But what you were saying about William, how he does seem like at times he's a very flawed character. But while, I don't know about you, but while I was reading about him, I... I liked him, mm -hmm. like he's a likable character, and I got that Terry Pratchett was trying to make him seem like a flawed character, and what I came away with feeling was that if the roles were reversed, if this was a watchbook, and Vives was dealing with the word the entire time, he would come off as such a prick, <laughs> you know, because he's like, he's, he's likable, and like he does some shitty things, but because we're seeing everything from his point of view, it all feels quite justified. But if we weren't on that side, if we were just seeing like the things he does as opposed to the person he is, we would probably hate him. Like, you know, nosy reporters in like books, films, anything, they always come across as like assholes. And there's that wonderful moment where there's actually this happens twice, actually, um, with Sakharissa and with the word uh, where they realize when news is happening, they don't try to stop it. They don't uh, think of it as something terrible that's happening. They're just like, oh, how can we cover this? Like uh, when the word says, oh, I was at, someone was threatening to jump off a building and Sakharissa without even thinking goes, oh, anything good? You know, yeah, like that yeah. horrible way that journalists are. And at the end, when uh, the cart crashes into the into the tavern, I think it, it there's a crash anyway. And 
the word is talking about how he doesn't try to stop it. He doesn't do anything. All he thinks of is how can I cover this? And that's kind of like the mantra of like the asshole mm-hmm. journalist that you see again and again and again. But because we're seeing it from the journalist point of view, we're okay with it. We're kind of like, yeah, he's fighting for the truth. We're on his side. But I think there'd be a very interesting parallel book that could be written about this in the exact same story, but story would written from someone else's point of view. And it could make the opposing argument where, you know, maybe the truth isn't the most important thing. Maybe how uh, telling everybody about certain events affects other people and how it can negatively do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, it, we'll, we'll get into it in, in a few moments about how a book about the uh, invention of newspapers as this, you know... Um, dynamic new innovation has aged in a time when traditional newspapers are declining in uh, most areas of the world um but mm. i i i frankly i think it's kind of aged a lot better than you would think but one thing one bit i do wonder about is that instinct you you described there of um i suppose what's my, what is described sometimes as bystander syndrome the idea of you see something happening and your first uh, reaction is not to intervene, but just to document it in some way. And mm. nowadays, oh, particularly when everyone is a potential uh, doc- documentarian, documenter, you know, via their phones, <laughs> we could see that as quite a negative development whereby, you know, horrific stuff's going on and just people are standing around gawking, holding up phones rather than doing anything to help. Uh, but the context in Angkor Park is presumably uh, on the back of the success of the Times maybe in years to come there will be other good newspapers in Angkor Park but at the moment it's just them and a very kind of uh, almost like Sunday sport-esque inquirer (laughs) so when himself and Satyarissa are running around uh, not intervening but documenting it's like within the context of that world they're doing something really valuable because they're the only ones who can um, effectively document mm-hmm. it in a way that will allow it to be um, accessed and read about by a lot of people all over the city whereas I suppose looking at it from our own 21st century round world eyes we think oh yeah you see these people rubbernecking at car crashes and you know uh, whatever taking selfies beside fires or something um, mm. and I do think that I think that uh, Terry Pratchett writes about it in a very smart way in this book. I mean, he doesn't, um, like, I feel like he is on the on that side of the fence. I think he considers, like, reporting the news, telling the truth as a very, very valuable asset. Um, he's quite clear on that at many points. I think there's a great moment near the start, actually, that kind of foreshadows the entire plot where it's when Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip are trying to sneak into the city and... Uh, Paolo, Ron and Gaspode see him come in and Terry Pratchett writes this great sentence. Uh, what was it? I think it was something like somebody had to witness it because if they hadn't witnessed it, it wouldn't <laughs> yeah. have happened. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. Cause like, it's just, uh, it's just a nice little way of, you know, foreshadowing everything that's coming up. Uh, but by the same token, he doesn't gloss over the negative sides of journalism. And that's what I like. I mean, this is very much, a book about the growing pains of journalism as an industry Mm -hmm. and all the problems they encounter. And while the solid backbone 
of it is that you know we're trying to like tell the truth and provide information for the public which is i think most people would agree generally a good thing it's not a black and white perfect issue there are problems with that free speech is something that we should all be entitled to but that invariably causes problems as we see every single time the word takes out a notebook and people get extremely <laughs> edgy about what he's going to write should everybody have free speech if they can say whatever they want you know <laughs> this is the question it's a bit with uh, mr slant um when he comes to, to close down their uh, their press is amazing when I think Zachary sent the word, get him out of technicality of the fact that it's unsigned by their documents, unsigned by the patrician. And then he starts to take now what Slant says, and Slant gets very uncomfortable. Uh, but <laughs> the that like tension and ground pains of journalism, my favorite part of this book is probably the conversation William and Zachary uh, have in the offices where William's talking about, you know, um, I'm trying to tell people something really important and she's like, you know, maybe that doesn't matter to normal people. Maybe they're too busy just wondering where the next meal is going to come from and like, mm. how, you know, how dare you get so high-minded and contemptuous and think that, uh, you know, what you're running around covering is more important than how people are keeping a roof over their heads or putting food on their table. And he... And, and he sort of, you know, comes back and says, yeah, well, look, like this, you know, ultimately is important because in the... Uh, I've got to look this up because um, yeah, it's, it's my, one of my favorite parts of the book. But I think w one of the things I really like about it is um, is that it doesn't the book doesn't really come down on either person's side of the argument. You know, it, it's not like William has proven Satyrus wrong or Satyrus has brought William back down to earth. And you see it at the mm -hmm. end when Veterinary shows up and he says about the uh, public interest being different from what the public is interested in. And yeah. Veterinary's kind of being sort of like pointing out the, the contradictions in the, I suppose what you might call like the moral authority of people like William and other journalists to go hunting after this stuff. But he's not, he's not able to, he's not using it as a reason to denounce or dismiss the newspaper either. You know, he's sort of poke, poking those mm. holes, but he's not, uh, you know, tearing it asunder. Um, that's, yeah, and I think that's, the way this is exemplified, I think, is absolutely fantastic in the way that the news is discussed at the breakfast yeah, table. Yeah. In the words, uh, you know, lodgings, it's so good. Because, I mean, if I don't know about you, but that reminded me of when I was working in retail and when I had an early morning shift, I'd go up to the canteen for breakfast and you'd always see the same people gathered around the newspaper saying, oh, God, did you see this? Fucking... Um, Conor McGregor is after punching a post office or something now or whatever has happened here in the news, you know, people like discussing this and it's funny because, yeah, it is those kind of stories. It's bombastic stories like that that probably aren't true or stuff that people felt feel like they can say, oh, well, I always knew he was no good. Those are the stories that always really grip the common mm. person. It has nothing to do with, you know, uh, well... Okay, that's that's a bit of a, an exaggeration now. I was going to say it has nothing to do with, like, you know, politicians in power, but important information that doesn't seem interesting, even though it's important, often gets brushed aside, you know? So um, things like, you know, the stock market or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of examples, but, you know, little small changes in legislation, things like that, that 
theoretically are very big news items very often just get brushed aside by the common public so it's interesting that this is highlighted and like put under close scrutiny and basically laughed at in this book which it's just i mean we couldn't laugh at it if we didn't know it to be true and that's what i think is great about it yeah yeah it's um uh, it, it's that, that part you mentioned earlier about Fellow Ron and Gaspo needing to be a witness to Pin and Jula coming in. It's as if uh, the, I mean, if, if if this book does advocate any justification, uh, ultimate justification for the idea of journalism, it's as a necessary witness to everything that's going on. And it's like, okay, you know, people may not necessarily be interested in it, and it may not necessarily change anything that they're covering it, but it should be covered nonetheless. You know, um, yeah. It's 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 not so much that, I mean, I think there's a certain viewpoint that it's not so much that people feel an absolute craving and desire to cover it. It's just that they feel it would be wrong for it not to be covered mm-hmm. more than anything else, you know. Um, but here, listen, on the topic of Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip, and I feel like this is going to go off into a bit of a tangent. How great were they as villains in this book? <laughs> yeah, they're wonderful. I mean... We've talked about villains before and how very often it's kind of a big problem in Terry Pratchett's writing that they get very dull or boring and many of them fall into that same trap towards the end where they seem these like these incredibly powerful individuals and then they just become helpless in the final act because the plot demands it. I think this might be one of those occasions where Terry he doesn't completely sidestep it but he does one of the best jobs he's done so far with Pin and Tulip. Like, they have a climax that feels fitting and organic as opposed to just narrative-driven. Yeah, and Payne's sort of descent into fear and paranoia is drip-fed to the readers over a few pages rather than, you know, him suddenly becoming a, a gibbering, going from, like, a cold killer to a gibbering lunatic, as the plot demands. Mm. Um, apparently, when he, in his first draft, he just, like... Uh, Carberry, he killed off Tulip in a much less sympathetic way, and his editor was quite taken with Tulip. And was like, "Oh no, you know, he he doesn't seem as bad as the other guy. Give him give him some kind of an out." Um, and hence, you have the bit where where after he's dead, death shows him all the people mm. uh, he he's hurt, and uh, he's you know somewhat penitent over the the whole thing. I I think they're really interesting too. Um, in that sense, we were talking about earlier of how established the Discworld status and the Ankh-Morpork status quo is here and how like this book sort of expects the reader to know it so these villains who are new to Ankh-Morpork and overturn a lot of the you know um, conventions they're almost like like a sort of meta commentary of these guys who are coming in and overturning the status quo that's been built up over the you know last few books and their thoughts of when they think about yeah, um, how a lot of the more the criminals are becoming other criminals are becoming much more respectable and you know not really vicious anymore. Like they mentioned it, the troll tons, which are like dons, which I really liked. <laughs> you know, acting like society lords. It reminded me of there's some I can't remember his name, but some historian talked about the tendency for uh, civilizations in the ancient world that he called um, sandals going up the stairs, slippers coming down, meaning they begin as 
usually sort of like the you know nomadic semi-barbarian conquerors um, like Persians, Assyrians, uh, and so so on. They you know conquer all around them, and then they sort of get you know complacent and comfortable having conquered all of that. Now it's it's a somewhat simplistic reading of history, but I think it's there's broad elements to it that are sort of true or applicable, and and, and I think you you sort of see it here with the idea of the Discworld itself has become much more settled down compared to the wild sword and sorcery. Uh, team park it was in the early books and these guys are coming in to you know unsettle that um it's and it's interesting that their lack of knowledge about like morpork is a strength in that they attempt things people wouldn't have thought of and their plan to frame veterinary and even when they just go around and uh threaten to kill slant and and you know where it not for um kind of pins continuing descent into uh, paranoia they probably would have gone through with it but at the same time it's a weakness because you see how like with the watch they really expect the watch to be not nearly as competent as they are um, mm. so yeah it's, it's it's interesting like that sort of uh, what I particularly I mean I feel like there's so much in them as characters to pick apart about what makes them uh, I don't even want to say likable because they're almost pointedly unlikable compared to previous villains. Like when you compare it to another one that we, I think we both really liked was Mr. Teatama, mm -hmm. who had like lots of little quirks and, you know, he was a bastard, but he was a kind of a likable bastard, you know? Whereas these guys, they're, they're almost, I wouldn't say they're a blank slate, but they're so simple. And at the same time, they have many facets to them. You know, it's it's so, they're so difficult to kind of pin down. Um, there's so much going on. And what I was trying, what was I going to say there? Sorry. Um, one thing that I really like about them, um, and I remember at the time being a little confused by it, and this is because it, I don't think it had ever happened before in previous Discworld books, is the scene where they go into the bar where all the undead and all the um, the werewolves, the ghouls, mm -hmm. and the boogeymen hang out, and that's it's something that drives the plot a little bit. I know it's because they're looking for a werewolf uh, because they want to try and find the dog. But what it quite pointedly does is show that Mr. Payne and Mr. Tulip aren't invincible, you know? And that's what a lot of previous villains lacked because they went through the entire plot being like, oh, the protagonist is in trouble when they bump into me. And then when the protagonist bumps into them, they're dead, yeah. you know? But here it's interesting because Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip aren't invincible. They're formidable as fuck, as I remember, because um, there's that point where uh, Sakurissa and Rocky go to the uh, Word's house or Lord the Word's manor, and Mr. Tulip knocks out a troll which is something that the only other person we know who's done that is Carrot back in Guards Guards. So a troll, we sorry, know a troll called Rocky who used to be in boxing but is very bad at boxing. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> who, who who may or not may or may not be the same troll from moving pictures who was called Rock. But uh Oh, yeah. I didn't even think Possibly. of that. Yeah. I mean, I imagine it's not an uncommon name for a troll. Yeah, that's a, that might be a bit speciesist, but, you know, who knows? Who's to say? Well, they're all the same to me, <laughs> <are> man. <laughs> Equal heights for all, that's what I say. But, you know, there is so much to unpack with them as villains. Like, uh, like what I find quite unusual is 
Mr. Tulip is such a simple character, but he's got so many interesting characteristics. You know, um, Mr. Pin describes him as just like, you know, personified rage, basically. But at the same token, he's got this weird insistence on having a drug habit and not being able to actually (laughs) pin one down that actually contains drugs. It's mind boggling. Like, that's something I could. It's it's so fascinating and I so surreal because I don't think it even means anything. It's just like he's trying to uh, make himself into the conventional villain and failing to do so. I, I don't know. Yeah. And then you also have the fact that Mr. Tulip is an incredible connoisseur of art and he has this like mausoleum of knowledge inside his head when it comes to fine art but he has trouble with very simple concepts like blackmail or not hitting people you know (laughs) to me he he, he really felt like an an overgrown child you know um yeah as i said he's so simplistic and even the drug habits thing feels like like a kid trying to imitate a you know a baddie they've seen on like on telly or in films or something (laughs) uh did you feel Particularly with the ending, did you feel like there was any parallels between Of Mice and Men with them? Um, you know, I haven't read Of Mice and Men since school, so I, oh. I, I can remember spoilers. Uh, Lenny, the big guy, dies. He, he dies, doesn't he? Does George kill him? Yeah, George kills him because basically uh, Lenny is holding him back from having any sort of life. And that's exactly what Mr. Pin does at the end, but he tries to trick him into it. And basically he does it in the same way because in Of Mice and Men, um, George uh, tells him basically, hey, you trust me, you completely trust me, so I know what's best for you, right? And then he kills him because in a way that is what's best for him. Mr. Pin does a similar thing. uh, Of Mice and Men, isn't it, that Lenny has killed Corley's wife as well, so he's going to be lynched or something. So like it's it's almost a mercy killing on on George's part. Again, I, I, I remember that, but I can't. It's a little ambiguous in the book. Um, it, it's implied that uh, they could just go and... I mean, it's implied that they're probably... He is going to be lynched. But uh, George is given a somewhat vague choice to continue running with him. Uh, like, you know, and try and start a new life again. But this is something they've done again and again and again. Um, or he can, uh, you know catch him and like turn him over to the mob but instead he does like the merciful thing where he gets Lenny to think that he's still on his side but Mm -hmm. does the thing that it's kind of debatable whether it's a selfish act or a selfless act um, which is what makes that book interesting here it's quite obviously not (laughs) a selfless act at all Pin kills Tulip because he wants to live but it's just interesting that there is that you know um, parallel there and what I find interesting um in that uh, parallel is of mice and men was kind of an interesting novel because it was about people you know trying to make their way in the great depression through any work that they could or and so on but the truth another thing that's quite central to the truth and it's a theme that runs throughout is just the idea of entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. and you know coming up with like fad businesses in a way like will they work out will they not um obviously the newspaper works out wonderfully. We know this is a fact. This is something that just works in the modern world. But you also have the wonderful parallel of Piss Harry, yeah. who makes a makes a business of collecting all the shit, the piss, the all the bodily fluids, and making an incredible empire out of it. So, yeah, it's. I, I think uh, Dibbler has the Feng Shui business at the very start of the novel that only gets briefly mentioned before. What was it that happened? Someone falls down the stairs yeah, or something the, like that? Or he, he 
warns them that if uh, whatever they think bad thoughts, the dragon of unhappiness will fly up from the toilet and bite their arse. But it being like more work in the disc and the power of belief manifesting things, it actually creates a dragon of unhappiness. <laughs> That's what it was. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's amazing. Div- Dibbler has some comment later, I think, about where he thinks about the uh, how he's in a you know in a bit of a, a bad run of luck and he says oh i almost ended up working for someone there for a while like he's someone who's constantly hustling and you know uh, starting these new usually ill-advised enterprises but he always wants to be his own boss at the end of it uh, yeah 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 and, and, and it's the, interesting that he gets wrangled into the um the tabloid the sunday post newspaper or not sunday mail newspaper as he said um and i think it's kind of a neat little sidestep to make sure Dibbler does, just doesn't become a newspaper editor because that does seem like a job he would be incredibly mm-hmm. well suited for because it's something that he's proven to be really, really good at. But I imagine it's something Terry Pratchett doesn't want to happen to Dibbler because he's such a useful character to have in the background of all his books. Yeah. So he, he manages to sidestep that by making Dibbler like, hate the job because he essentially gets kidnapped and forced into doing it by the, the other newspaper. Which is good. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, um, there's the, the thread running through it along with the entrepreneurship thing of, of accountability. As he said, that like, you know, Vimes uh, criticizes William for not being accountable to anyone, but it's sort of questionable how, how accountable Vimes is, but he you know, sees himself that way. The, the people mm. who, the committee to unelect a patrician in a nice nod to um, all the president's men and the Watergate scandal, where it was the committee to reelect the president. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they're obviously very much taking the law into their own hands and don't see themselves as accountable uh, to the patrician or to anyone else. Like they feel that they can make these decisions on behalf of all of the people. Um, people like Piss Harry and Dibbler thrive in this environment where they can, you know, uh, be their own boss and be. Um, be accountable uh, only largely to themselves. And then running through that is this idea of respectability. Uh, I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier about Payne and Tulip kind of criticizing uh, a lot of Ank Morpork's uh, criminal classes of becoming, you know, too respectable and soft. You have Satyrissa who sort of apes the um, what she believes to be the mannerisms of the, you know, upper classes to become ladylike in some way. You have uh, Piss Harry's wife who wants to be like she he gets William to cover his daughter's wedding and William eventually gets a veterinary to come along so you know his wife can kind of feel like she's actually part of the uh, Angmore Pork um, mm. upper crust even though like Harry's one of the richest men in Angmore Pork but they all look down on him because of the, the type of job he has uh, yeah but it, it, which is interesting she, she changed his sign over his door from taking the piss since whatever it was like you know 1992 <laughs> harvesting nature's bounty or something <laughs> yeah that was great it's actually um oh god what was i going to say now uh yeah it's interesting what you said about accountability and all that because the first there's a good i'd say almost 50 or 60 pages that are basically made up of at least 50 or 60 pages, I'd say, of the character saying, what should we put in the newspaper? What do people like to read? And it's basically runs through the absolute gamut of all the things that people generally read in newspapers. And it covers, like, you know, broadsheets, tabloids, small no- local mm-hmm. newspapers with uh, 
the uh, that guy who keeps coming to show <laughs> him the humorously shaped vegetables, yeah. which is just absolute perfection. Um, and what was the? There was a point. Now, sorry, I don't think I wrote this down, so I can't remember what exactly it was. But there was something that the word didn't want put in the newspaper, and he showed it to. Uh, the head dwarf whose name I've also forgotten. Good so Mountain, about that. which is a uh, good uh, comment on uh, Gutenberg, who made the printing press that revolutionized and movable printed type all oh, around Europe. Oh, that's right, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, the word shows Good Mountain like a letter or something that somebody wrote in that like is a little offensive. I think it's about I think it's offensive about dwarfs actually. And uh, Good Mountain has a quick read of it and says, "Yeah, put it in." Swap, but it's offensive. You know, people will complain. Good, put their letters in too. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's interesting because it's an interesting comment on both on the style of journalism that, yeah, you can say anything. Like if you, it's it's kind of that mentality that you often see on clickbait links. You know, if you say something audacious enough, you're bound to get comments about it. So it's not really a bad thing because yeah. it gets you traffic. And that seems like to be what's going on a bit here. So this is early on when they're still learning that, what it is to be a journalist you know they, they do have a responsibility in terms of what they print so yeah yeah, yeah there's so much about the, the wording too but you know that section where William is in the patrician's palace trying to investigate the scene of the crime and Bimes doesn't give him permission but um, he, he keeps he doesn't lie but he keeps very selectively choosing his words to the other watchman where it's something like you know oh I've spoken to Commander Vimes, and they're like, okay, you know, he hasn't said that, I've spoken to him, yes. and he let me, uh, and, and you, you, that's the thing, you see a lot with, like, clickbait and tabloid stuff, there's um, one of my uh, um, football website that I visit quite often, Football365, has a section each day called Media Watch, where they sort of highlight the, you know, the, the worst examples of hyperbole, or um, just... Uh, specious use of, of language and, and you know within the wider football media and it will be things like that where you know it's not like they're completely making something up but they'll say something like uh, oh I, I don't know like um, uh, like Alex Ferguson says Liverpool have no chance of winning the league this year and the, like that will be the headline and then when you go in the quote will be Alex Ferguson saying oh I think Man City are definitely the favourites for the <laughs> league this year you know and it's just like well Okay, technically you can say like he expressed a, like his belief that another team would win the league ahead of Liverpool, so he is saying, you know, but he isn't saying they have no chance, but you know, it's kind of like it's it's this like step-by-step uh, process that allows you to, you know, print and say these things while having that um uh, <laughs> that sense of, you know, well, I'm not lying. I'm, you know, I'm not completely making this up. Um I love that section too and or is it uh, page or it's 106 or it's words resemble fish and that some specialist ones can survive only in a kind of reef where their curious shapes and usages are protected from the hurly-burly of the open sea rumpus and fracas are found only in certain newspapers in much the same way that beverages are found only in certain menus they are never used in normal conversation and it's so true there are all these you know words and phrases that you see popping up in newspaper headlines that you know, are completely alien to the way people think um, or the way people yeah. talk. Like, like how tabloids always say, like, um, they always use fury for anger in a way that, like, no one would. It would be, uh, oh, 
you know, or, I don't know, whatever, like um, uh, Kim Kardashian, my Taylor Swift fury. And it's like, did she, she probably never <laughs> used that word to describe her, you know, anger. Um, or Yeah, before tabloids were a thing, like that was something that was pretty much limited to Greek tragedies, really, more than anything else. So it's like bizarre that it props, crops up all the time that way. Yeah. It is... It's interesting that the the power of words like is something that kind of underlines almost every aspect of this book because something that sets a lot of this in motion, I mean, the entire political events of it in terms of how Vetinari is uh, framed and all that is kind of driven because of blackmail, you mm-hmm. know? So like everything is kind of powered by words in this book. Like the new firm, the reason that they're kind of kept on a tight leash is because uh, Slant ha- uh, can blackmail them very, yeah, very... Yeah. Trust, trust a lawyer to actually be able to wield like a weapon like that because of the power of words. But by the same token, they get out of that because they use the exact same trick, they blackmail Slant. Mm-hmm. And that's the only reason they're able to get out of the job and get out in the first place. And, you know, I think the way they get... Um, charlie on board is just with like empty promises so again we're looking at a different words used in a different but similarly effective way there's lots of like little little aspects like that i also found it interesting that uh gaspode made an appearance in this yeah Um, yeah. i i think going back to the sense of the uh this being really written with a view that people will have probably read under this growth books this is probably i think the first book he's in that makes no attempt to explain how he can speak yeah, yeah. You know, just assume it's, it's interesting. You, you'll know. But it's, I mean, there's just little things like, based on the fact that he's very much aligned himself with like a uh, foul old Ron and Coffin Henry and all these, and they're all, um, you know, they're all beggars and, but they're also all like human beings. But notably, Gaspode is probably is basically the leader of that group because he's the most well spoken. Mm-hmm. He's got like the best grasp of the english language and for that reason he's probably the most powerful in that group you know i mean even based on the fact that he's constantly uh you know talking to people saying woof woof wait did that dog say woof woof or no 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 dogs can't talk everyone knows that let's just get past that you know so you know he is himself like kind of a wordsmith um also absolutely love that he goes by the name deep bone in this as opposed to deep deep throat that was great i i liked it too that uh just this goes back to what we were saying earlier about william being a flawed character is his um when he's talking to deep bone and he comes to the conclusion that he's probably a foreigner uh yeah because of the phrases he uses and he compares him to Otto in the same way that like he, he thinks nobby is the werewolf which is a great joke which again um I suppose eventually you do find out in this book if you didn't know already that Atangua, but I, I felt like it's another joke that like the reader only gets it at that point if they've read a previous book and they know you know how how wrong he is. Those little things where he's making an assumption that like if you didn't know better, you would say, well, he has followed logic there to reach the conclusion he's had, but because you've, mm. most readers will have presumably read another Discworld book before this, know that he's know that he's wrong without the narration having to immediately highlight that he's wrong. Yeah, I think that's like that's great. It's a great, such a weird thing to say, but it is a great flaw for someone to have. It makes him very human. That he's because aside from the fact that he's constantly getting things wrong a lot of the time, he's very smug about it. Mm-hmm. So like he doesn't question. Oh, maybe that's it. Like when he says, "I won't tell anybody that Nobby's a vampire," 
um, he sees Vimes pauses for a second and after that he says as soon as he paused I knew I had him I knew I was right and I'm like dude you are oh it's it's kind of painful that like he's one of the best characters because one of the I, I know that's kind of a very brash statement but I think he is one of the best written characters because his history syncs up with his character mm-hmm. you know he, you can you can see how he had like a very affluent family and an affluent upbringing like that comes across in his character but similarly he didn't adapt to it so he wants to be a better person and this is funny because this is something that I was thinking before it's made explicit in the book. He does kind of try too hard with everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, he tries very hard with the dwarves. He tries very hard with uh, Rocky when he meets him first. He tries very hard with Otto. And it doesn't necessarily come across as sincere. It's more how he's seen, I feel. Like, he doesn't want to appear to be, you know, yeah. intolerant of anyone. It, it's, so It's very... Um like liberal guilt where he, yeah, you know, he's yeah. aware of the uh, privileges he had, he's had and he's trying to make up for it. But in a way that's, uh, you know, quite heavy handed at times. And I suppose is founded on a misguided belief that you ever can remove yourself entirely from your background. Otto has that great line about, mm. you know, like you're trying to be a good person. So that counts, you know, that, but basically yeah. saying, like, I know you're prejudiced against me and, like, I don't hold that against you because that's your background, but you're trying and that's the important thing. Or when, when he has that great conversation with Goodman about the dwarf customs of marriage, about uh, buying each other off the, the parents and he regards it at first mm. as quite, like, cold. I, I like that because you can sort of see his point of view, like, that it would come across that way um, mm. to... Uh, humans I suppose or to anyone not used to that custom it isn't as if he you know is uh, he is a character whereby oh he grew up in this prejudice rich background but now he has become an enlightened good guy so like he's just like a friend to all living things and can you know understand mm. all their ways and get on with them just fine like instead he's, he's still struggling with his own beliefs and uh, the limits of his own horizons like like all of us are really yeah and I do like the fact that Good Mountain challenges him on this. Like, I'm glad it's not something that's just kind of there. But by the same token, Good Mountain does challenge him in it. And there is that moment where it's a little tense and you're kind of feeling... It doesn't really feel like they're going to have a falling out, but it is tense. And that's good, I mm-hmm. think, because that's... in like in, This is probably like the best possible scenario, uh, but that's kind of how you could see it working, how it could be, you know, yeah, you can't really detach yourself from your upbringing. Like you might be a very liberal person, but if you know, if you have a conservative roots, then, you know, that's always going to be present. You can't just, it's not that easy to change, but trying is much more important than your upbringing. So he comes across as a good person, even though he's not perfect, Mm -hmm. which I think is a really really strong really strong characterization in this character and I think it's great it's one of, some, one of the best that I think we've seen in quite some time which is great yeah um, um, I, I really like I, I like uh, Satyrissa too as a supporting character like her sort of 
efforts to be ladylike are quite funny, but also, as I said, in keeping with some of the wider themes of the book. And I like how she's very much the head to William's heart. Like, he's all about this big golden idea of the truth as this, you know, abstract, unassailable ideal. And while mm. she's not as mercenary as Dibbler or the people behind the Inquirer, she certainly quite quickly gets a firmer grasp on what people actually want to read and and you sort of see mm. her fumbling for that at the start like you know when she gives him that first report she done about some like twee little cake making society where the watch broke in and chased a naked man around and she's sort of seems um unaware that uh she's uh what's the word uh phrase burying the lead in the sense that like the watch chasing the naked man is the much more interesting aspect of that story but like William says as much to her and you see her as the book goes on getting more and more to grips with the, the you know just a, a practical process of being a journalist the one part I, I regret is uh, William mentions about how she's much better at writing and coming up with headlines than he is and, and he, he has yeah. something about her like talking like that and uh, again going back to those words that are only used in headlines and he says he says he had to stop her from referring to veterinary as city boss, which which is another one of those like <laughs> like uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I also like I'm gonna alien anyone who is the football fan with these comparisons, but like there's so many you see that so much in like sports and football journalism is these words and terms that are never used by anyone else, like uh, you know whatever, Chelsea Supremo Maurizio Sarri. And he's like, Supremo, he's the manager, he's the head coach. Yeah, like, like I was start, like, City, I'm going to start calling everyone Supremo now, that's going to be fantastic. City boss instead of patrician. But I, 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 do, uh, I do think it's a missed opportunity that we don't see that, that we don't see her kind of dropping these words into conversations and people look at her like, oh, that's a strange thing to say. It does have that wonderful moment where she's talking about the bake, uh, the baking competition. And mm. uh, there's so much wordplay going on there. It's a fantastic where she basically summarizes the entire thing, and she says something about what was it? Um, lots of stuff about like tarts and creaming and stuff like that. It's just it's it's so cringeworthy but so brilliant. Mm. Um, I have some issues with Sakarissa uh, though. I mean. Alarm bells went off almost the moment she was introduced because I don't know if you remember, like in the page that she's first introduced, the entire focus is on her appearance, which is really unfortunate. Like, um, I think overall she's quite a good character because, you know, like um, you say, she's she's really good at her job. Um, she seems to surpass William in many ways. They work together in a partnership. It's kind of teased that it's romantic, but I quite like that it's left not tantalizingly ambiguous, just ambiguous. Like uh, towards the end, uh, the word says that he wants to, you know, do you want to go for lunch or something? And you might be able to see that as a date, but that kind of gets interrupted with the, mm -hmm. the card crash. And then they said, OK, let's go get the information. And Sasha said, no, listen, we'll get somebody else to get the information. I'll interview these people and you interview that, that person. So... They've got a really solid uh, partnership going. And I feel like I like the direction it went in, but I don't know. Part of me wishes, maybe I'm being a bit like, you know, uh, maybe this is just wish fulfillment on, on my part, but I wish it didn't have to have that opening description of her. 
where it's just like you know oh I never really looked at her before but now that I look at her she's actually quite attractive when she's standing in front of me and like her chest heaving and all that that kind of stuff I mean interesting comments being made on like uh, sexuality and it's interesting that she uses her sexuality as a tool to further her career a lot of the time because she gets people to talk Mm -hmm. to her because they find her attractive it's 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 more progressive than previous representations of sexuality, but by the same token, it's still quite regressive. But I suppose that's not considering this was written when was 2000s, it? Two thousand ninety nine. When was it? Around two thousand or nineteen ninety nine? Was it? Uh, sorry, I'm opening. Nineteen two thousand. Two thousand. Yeah, yeah it's two thousand. So this is like nearly nearly twenty years ago now. So with that in mind, I suppose this is probably more progressive than a lot of books of that era i suppose we're just looking at it from a very very different point of view at this yeah, point but well, well, i mean this is just my opinion I, I mean i don't entirely disagree with you i i'd sort of i'd be i'd be loath to give things a pass just because they were in 2000 like uh, you're right it makes you feel very old to say 20 years ago but it was you know it wasn't yeah. like a, 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 it shouldn't be a different age for human uh, gender relations but I, I think a couple of things about her uh, appearance. One, it's amazing given the fact that attention is called in the text to the size of her breast that Josh Kirby, um, in what might be his second to last cover ever, um, passes up the opportunity to draw a woman with like really oversized breasts like he does on <laughs> most of the <laughs> That's earlier true, covers. That's true, yeah. Um, two, <laughs> I, I, compared to earlier I ones. would say like a lot of that stuff... Uh, description, it's sort of ambiguous as to how much it's just a gent- like the kind of like omniscient narrator and how much is William's thoughts um, mm. and like William like certainly William who mentions this idea of her being good uh, at getting interviews because she's attractive which seems like you could just read that as like sour grapes on on his part somewhat and again as, mm. as we said this book many times while he is the main character does call attention to his fallibility and unreliability um, and the the uh, Oh yeah, yeah. When she's first described as attractive, like again, I wonder how much that is is just down to him because that part where you know he's walking her home and then he just abruptly says, uh, um, "Oh, I don't think we should go out together." That's so cringeworthy. I actually had to put the book down at that point. But but I I thought I thought it was intentional because like she takes the piss out and she's like. Oh, I'm sure you have loads of girls waiting for you. Like, if, if this is the way you yeah. talk to women, you know. Um, but uh, so I, I kind of I wondered how much of it is just sort of like depicting him as this, uh, you know, sort of repressed shut-in who's like only just noticing that this person who was just like a, I know, almost a background prop to his previous um, relationship with her grandfather. Uh, like the fact that he's just so out of sorts when he when he notices that she's attractive in any way. Sorry, did you have something else to say there? I was because I was gonna take a summary. No, 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 go ahead. Um, yeah, what what I was gonna say was I think the I, I mentioned earlier about the idea of like how has this book aged, given that like it's about the uh, you know the advent of uh, newspapers into disc. It's this new fresh thing, and now we're in a kind of increasingly. Uh, decline age of decline of newspapers i think it's amazing how prescient it is with regards to disinformation and fake news and things like that yeah it's, it's oh, mm-hmm. oh like the, 
just that idea of um, when they're at the breakfast table and none of the other lodgers know that William is the editor. So they all just ascribe this these like ludicrous levels of like authority and omniscience to the people who write the newspapers you know like oh they have special yeah. people for this and at the end he tells them he's just like it's just me and the young lady and, and your man says oh I, I thought they had you know someone special um, <laughs> but it, 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 I suppose it sets up this idea that like you know so much I suppose disinformation in the uh, in like the, the last decade or so has been founded on this idea of the appearance of the truth you know like big Sites like uh, Breitbart and um, it's it's ilk. One of the reasons they've thrived is because they're so um, uh, like their interface and appearance and aesthetics are quite sleek and look like a legitimate you know news source. So the people who uh, the people who who look at them just um, on some level consciously or subconsciously uh, imbue them with this idea of authority and trustworthiness because they look official you know yeah yeah and i think it's interesting because you know this is a book that's very much looking at the advent of uh news and written journalism and because it's kind of syncing up with i wouldn't necessarily call it the advent of like you know online uh journalism because we've been in this we've been going through that for quite some time, but it's still very much in its infancy because so many people can't sift through all the rubbish and misinformation to find the actual truth within that. So there is a parallel happening there. And it's, uh, in a way it's, it's, it's coincidental, but very fortunate that we're reading this at this time when like, you know, the messages in this book sync up very well with like, you know, uh, discourses that are occurring in our current society um uh, it's what was it there is also um what was it there there's also the fact that uh misinformation like how it evolves through time and uh i remember what was it when veterinary is talking about sending a clax message where is it to uh stolat or somewhere and he can order some prawns or something on the other side of the world, yeah. like within a matter of minutes. But then later on in the book, somebody says that, oh yeah, he kept talking about lobsters <laughs> over in Longford or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just like, it's it's amazing how like fast things evolve, like because of hearsay. And there's an interesting parallel that occurred recently and you probably saw, it's, it's funny, I, I'd be interested to see if you heard about this because I was on the other side of the world when this happens. Did you see the... Um, that Momo thing. I was kind of on the fringes around. of it. Yeah, it was a hoax, wasn't it? About some panic of like some yeah. game on uh, so, social media that was telling kids to do all sorts of stuff, but it was just completely made up. I only I, exactly, I was only in the yeah. pub the other day, and my uncle was telling me about it, and I had to tell him it was a hoax. Yeah, that's the thing because it's amazing because uh, people got so worked up with the idea of it that it just like it got worked up into a frenzy and it was shared like by hundreds upon hundreds of people. Many of my own family I saw and family and friends were doing the same thing. And it's understandable because, you know, people do get worked up about this kind of thing, but they don't read the articles themselves, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's kind of similar to this. People are kind of getting the headlines, but not reading the news. And it's, yeah, yeah. I I was uh, at a, um, seminar about disinformation recently and, and one of the things that was cited and it was this idea of, of why people you know spread 
uh, fake news and a big factor in the research one was in concern for others so say you you know come across some like spurious piece about oh the mmr vaccine will give your child autism or something like that you might look mm. at it and be like oh i'm not sure about that and i don't even have kids but i do know loads of people who do and like who are around the age where they're getting the vaccine i better spread this just in case you know um mm. and there's like like a certain kind of sense of that you know of, of a, particularly with all the moral panic stuff you see come up in the inquiry of like oh women get spared to serpents it's like huge crime wave here that the people are almost like trying to perform the act of being good citizens by like talking about this stuff and staying informed but they're not informed at all they're just sort of reading the headline and spreading the misinformation but it gives them this sense of like oh like we're you know con- contributing to stopping this in some way you know um, and it then also gives them a feeling of superiority over the people in power like there's a lot of conversations around the breakfast table uh, with the man William lives with of you know oh the patrician should be doing something about this or the watch should be doing something you know and it's mm. it's as if uh i suppose in a hectic chaotic world once you can gain enough information that you feel this sense of vague superiority over someone who you feel should be tackling it that you know that that's enough like that that's enough to sort of comfort you in the <laughs> face of this whatever this apparent danger is yeah i actually um Bringing it back to the book, I thought it was interesting. I mean, it feels very natural and organic. The fact that um, the newspaper brings in auto because they want to have photos and pictures in mm. their newspaper because that is something that newspapers have. It feels like a very organic thing. But I also find it very interesting, the fact that he uses dark light in the book. Um, I'm trying, like, I was trying to figure out before what's the significance of it. Like, I mean, it's literally the only point of dark light to cause... Um, Mr. Pin to lose his mind, like as he does later. Like, I thought there might have been some kind of symbolic significance behind it. And I'm just wondering now, do you think there's any possibility that uh, it's some kind of veiled metaphor of like obscuring the news as opposed to clarifying the news? Um, I, I think it sort of ties in with the general themes of modernization in that Otto's trying to use it to develop new photo techniques. And he mentions how the dwarves are really superstitious of it. You know, and they just think it's mm. it's like a... I mean, it, it almost seems to throw back to the whole uh, primitive people encountering cameras for the first time, think they're stealing their soul or, you know, something like that. Whereas, like, he's mm. seeing it as just, no, this is a tool we can, you know, use for art or uh, journalism. Um, and, and they're viewing it as something much more um, magical. But although in the event, they're sort of partly right in that they're obviously... It does have certain magical properties... Um, I mean, I found it interesting because if you think, I mean, now I'm, I'm using, I'm sort of using hyperbole here now to kind of, I'm basically thinking out loud as, as I'm saying this. So uh, don't mind me if it's all gibberish, but you know, it, the way, because he uses the contrast of regular light and dark light. So he's using regular light and that kind of um, is used to basically portray regular photographs. So it's kind of for clarification. Whereas dark light, it can be used in the same way, but it's the opposite. And so it kind of draws things in broad strokes. So, for example, when he takes the picture of William, uh, he's got his father looking over his shoulder. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, on the one hand, taking a picture of 
William with a regular photograph using regular light would have just showed him standing there. But using dark light, it kind of uses less objective, um, a less objective viewpoint and more subjective. Yeah, it's so almost it's like cloud- expressionist cl- photography yeah, so- or something. Yeah, so it's it's clouding like an objective viewpoint and making a statement almost, like which in turn is obscuring the facts. So I don't know if that's what Terry Pratchett was going for. I'm just trying. I feel like there's something more to Dark Light in the context of this book than simply the way it was used for narratively. But yeah. that's that's pretty much the best I have to be honest with you. It's kind of a difficult one to pin down. It, it does contrast nicely too with. Uh... William gets these anxieties about the transience of the the news content he produces that, you know, like Piss Harry mentions that they go into his vats, all the the used newspapers, you know, and then they basically end up as as a toilet roll. That's the lovely line. I like to cut out the middleman. And and William thinks that at the end when he wants, you know, him to to just take a quick uh, break, he's thinking of like, all this is going to be gone the next day. Um, whereas obviously dark light photographs kind of crossing time as it were and depicting like bits of the future and bits of the past go against Mm. this idea of the newspaper um, being all about what's true right at that moment and you know then is uh, rendered obsolete the following day Uh, like William does have that line that's really interesting but you could quite critique it a lot too about it only has to be true today uh, about the the news they find, which is true in the sense of like like that's your job as a you know I, I suppose as a journalist obviously you've got to exercise certain like a certain amount of responsibility, but you couldn't you couldn't continually keep holding off reporting things on the basis of oh well you know in a couple of months I might find out that like that's not the case or things have changed or something like that you know there's the immediacy uh, of it is part of its, I suppose, appeal and its, its raison d'etre. But at the same time, it, it also does allow them a lot of leeway in, you know, in this book, and you could argue in real life, in what they do, of this idea of, well, yeah, you, you, you're moving so fast and trying to capture the immediate truth that you have no time to slow down and, uh, you know, look at the bigger picture and uh, see what's maybe... Uh, the wider morals of it so I suppose Dark Light goes against all of that and crossing time but other than that I, I couldn't say I, I like Otto a lot as a character incidentally I I think I had read originally Toad and Nightwatch maybe is he in that like at least two other books where he features as a very minor character just showing up with his camera and I remember thinking of those he was just kind of whatever you know like an amusing gimmick like this you know nearly uh like vampire who's into photography and kills himself every time he takes a picture and instantly uh regenerates and i did wonder when the first time i began reading this i was thinking oh this is his origin story and i was thinking is he can you like even as a supporting character can you really get a book out of this fella um but he's actually Mm. I, i i really liked him like his sort of his efforts to suppress his uh, murderous desires and how much he sort of pours into this passion of photography. Um, like Pr- mm. Pratchett really seems to have a thing for uh, depicting like artists and craftsmen who are just so invested in what they do and have this love for it and also the sense of perfectionism. Uh, and he's another one of, in, in, you know, in the 
in a long line of characters like that. Um, and, and just his like like that bit where he comes back and the uh, printing press is burnt down after um, painted tulip up in there, and he thinks it's a, a mob, and he's like, "Oh, this always happens," and he's kind of fatalistic about it. Like it, it sort of hints <laughs> at a much rougher life he's had in his sort of path to temperance, I suppose, as a vampire. Mm. Yeah, I I'm not sure. I mean, I like many of the things that happen with Otto, but I'm not sure if I actually like him as a character myself. I mean, I, I love the idea of him as like a recovering alcoholic slash, you know, vampire person who's trying to abstain from that kind of thing. And all the parallels that are made, like with um, the song that he sings to himself uh, when uh, Saccharissa starts breathing heavily in front of him, all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, there's like, there's lots going on there, but Maybe it's because I, I read them in order, so I hadn't seen him before this point, and I just felt like there should have been a little more depth to him. Um, it does seem like there's something happening in his past, or something had happened in his past, but it's so vague, it just it feels very constructed in the moment. Well, he, he mentions his friend, Boris, who was killed by a, a mob, uh, despite being a, a fellow Black Ribboner. And, and I sort of liked it. I, I think he's actually... he's somewhat similar to how Tulip is depicted here that Tulip's past is kind of vaguely sketched out to explain mm. why he is the way he is uh, but it doesn't go into too much detail as to seem like a sort of how would you put it um, you know one of those glib cod psychological motives you see in you know, across literature, films, so on, where, oh, this one thing happened to this character in the past, ergo, they are the way they are now. You know, mm. when you're a little vaguer like that, it allows the reader to imagine there's more complexity behind it. I, I love that line about Tulip where Payne thinks uh, Tulip's past was a, to Tulip the past was a foreign country with closely guarded borders. Um, yeah. I like about him screaming in his sleep and... Uh, as he thinks about his hometown, he says there were forests and candles and secrets and doesn't say any more. Um, yeah, and I like that. I think with, with Tulip, I think that really works because I feel like that feels like there's a legitimate history behind him and it's being he's, he's guarding it quite pointedly. With Otto, I don't really feel like that. I feel like he's just someone who's placed in the moment and he has little throwaways about his past that are just, he's almost like he's making it up at the time. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think he's very good as a side character. I wish he hadn't been given as much emphasis as he was. He has, my favorite moment with him is actually at the end when he jumps in to save, uh, William the word mm -hmm. from, uh, his dad. And, William says, uh, I never thanked you, did I? He said, uh, no, you didn't, but you, what was it? you thought about it, and that's what's important. So, you know, like, uh, Otto kind of acts as a nice, Otto and Good Mountain both act like a nice kind of, uh, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Like something for William to bounce off Foil. of, like, you know, to... What? Foil. A foil. Yes, that's yeah. sorry. That's what was the word. That was the one word I was trying to think. Uh, think of. Um, yeah, he, he is a good foil for William, and he works as that. Less so, in my opinion, as a character. But that's just me. I mean, it may, this might be a case of like um, 
uh, small gods were something that really worked with you just didn't work for me because of our perilous upbringings being so like you know <laughs> disproportionate or whatever yeah for me it was the woods candles and a dark secret and uh you know <laughs> you were all about animaniacs and terry pratchett <laughs> yeah i mean in, in the case of small gods i you know i grew up more religious and in this case i suppose i grew up more vampire-y <laughs> yeah that must be it oh actually um another thing that we haven't talked about which I remember the time being really interesting and this is similar to Dark Light in that I feel like I'm playing a little fast and loose with how I interpret it but the fact that Mr. Tulip is constantly saying ing how did you read that? <laughs> and I don't mean like literally how did you read that because I mean I know that in itself is a bit of a challenge well, like, like, but you know We're gonna scrag the ing guy like you know, like a, a glossal stop or a kind of gulp every every time uh, he, he said it. That's how I heard it in my head. Mm. Um, yeah, and it, otherwise, it, it just again felt like him being like an overgrown child. You know, like that he's maybe he, he's somewhat like it's almost a vocal tick when he's talking that he constantly resorts to it, or that he's mm. deliberately doing it to you know seem tougher. Yeah. I just found it very interesting because it's, um, it again, it's it's one of those things that Terry Pratchett was always so good at, is that he plays with our expectations a little bit. Like, this is something we've seen plenty of times in books before, where, you know, somebody swears, and because the author doesn't want, for whatever reason, to have swearing in their book, they'll censor it. Mm-hmm. And we, the first couple of times we see this, we see Tulip going, I'll ing kill you, you ing bastard or whatever anything like that so naturally we make that assumption it's like oh yeah you know he, he's swearing whatever but then somewhere around the halfway point i think it's sakurisa who says why does he keep saying ing why does he do that you know it's like oh wait what so it's like it's almost i mean it might simply be a case of you know these are characters who kind of know they're in a book you know they're playing around with our expectations of language and that sort of thing but there's also something of an interesting thing going on in terms of censorship, you know, and again, with the idea of free speech and being careful what we say in certain situations and, yeah. you know, so like, um, like William was very careful how he phrased things in the palace in order to get certain places. And whereas uh, Mr. Tulip doesn't actually use this in a tactical way, it is kind of interesting that... Uh, it is being employed it's almost like trying to say saying something what what exactly even just like bringing our attention to the fact that some things get censored and this is something that we should be aware of yeah well I I mean I hadn't thought of it but now as you're saying it speech patterns are huge across the book like obviously we have say someone like Sacharissa deliberately speaking more uh, in a more what she imagines to be a refined manner and then she gives that up at the end when she threatens your man Ronnie Kearney uh, in a kind of Pulp Fiction-esque moment like yeah um, but you have uh, Gaspo obviously as you said earlier is the kind of like leader of the canting crew because he is the best speech and you have like William uh, coming up with like theories about deep bone based on his speech you have Otto mm. and his Ubervalian accent that they speculate is sort of deliberately exaggerated to make him appear less you know um, threatening Mm. And actually, even the fact that he says certain things and he's waiting for a thunderclap to happen. Yeah. Because, you know, when you say something very dramatic in Uberwald, you usually hear a kind of thing. 
Also, don't forget um, the brief moment when William meets Igor in the watch yeah. and he says, oh, how come he's only lisping some of his words? He's always trying to be cool, you know, these modern <laughs> Igors. I'm like, wow. So it's interesting that people, a lot of people in this alter the way they talk or the way they think they should talk. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk. Now I'm lisping as well, like Igor. But alter the way they think they should talk in order to move with the times or simply you know take advantage of their situation by saying the things that they think other people want to hear so yeah yeah it's it's interesting mm. that yeah like with mr tulip i there's so there's so much to unpack with mr tulip so much but um i suppose the way i read that is more it's not so much something on Mr. Tulip's part, it's more on the way Terry Pratchett writes him, and that he's basically trying to make us think of Mr. Tulip as a very interesting character. Um, like with many, many layers, even though realistically, when you get right to, down to it, he doesn't really. He's a very simple man who just has characteristics. That's simply it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, interestingly, what did you think of Mr. Pin? Um, I, I like this uh, well I didn't like him as a, a person but I, I think he's an interesting character because again he, he has this very um, very strongly defined sense of them as you know villains and they're the, the new firm and you know we're, we're professionals we do things professionally and those contrasts I mentioned earlier with the kind of more established respectable criminals and how they go beyond that like he sort of I suppose he, he kind of uh he he almost has those. We talked about the tension between respectability and entrepreneurship earlier. That's sort of rife with him, where he's kind of very much chafing under working, under slant that the rest of the conspiracy and not you know knowing exactly who they are. But he also and he he pours scorn on the faux respectability of the other criminals yet he kind of has aspirations to it himself in thinking of the the new firm as professionals and very consciously uh distinguishing them from assassins and thieves and things like that hmm. did you not find though that when put alongside mr tulip like compared to him did he not seem a little bit dull to you no, because I think Mr. Tulip would be incredibly dull if he didn't have Mr. Pym to talk to, you know? It'd be just this, like, yeah, uh, it would be, like, just this, like, mumbling psychosis shambling around um, <laughs> a, everywhere. A foul old Ron character, if you like. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's so much less to unpack with Mr. Pym, but now that you say it, yeah, I suppose he... Like they both work as a foil for each other, um, very much so. Like, but I do think, like you said, Mister Tulip would be very dull without Mister Pin. I think Mister Pin would be incredibly dull without Mister Tulip. I think if Mister Tulip wasn't there, he would effectively be a uh, Taya Taime wannabe mm-hmm. who just doesn't really like impress in any way whatsoever. Uh, the most interesting thing about his character is when he gets overcome with guilt towards the end. And what eventually happens to him actually is beautiful, beautiful justice. (laughs) Um, For those who don't remember, uh, Mr. Tulip uh, assures Mr. Pin that once you have your potato, everything will be okay once you die. Um, It's essentially a religion that he has. So Mr. Pin, when he kills Mr. Tulip, uh, he steals his potato 
And after he dies, he is resurrected as a humorously shaped, well, semi-humorous shaped vegetable, uh, a potato in the afterlife. Yeah, and it's then so, yeah. fries, turn it to chips. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is very, very dark when you get right down mm. to it. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I love them as characters, but it's they work so well together. I, I absolutely love the fact that they have a bunch of... Uh, Pulp Fiction references yeah, yeah. between themselves. Like, what was it they said? What do they call a sausage in a bun over in Quirm? <laughs> uh, he says it's less sausage in a bun. Well, that's a dumb name. They should come up with something better, like or whatever like that. Yeah, the, the wallet would not a very nice person on it instead of bad motherfucker. <laughs> I, I never, when before that, I never understood why, like, like, that was set up like a joke. And when I was a kid, I'd never seen Pulp Fiction. And I was like, why? Is that there? It seems like such an odd thing to focus on, but all right. But yeah, here it makes it so much better. And it is also interesting that it's Pulp Fiction references in particular, mm-hmm. because, you know, with all the talk about, you know, entertaining news as opposed to informative news, it makes a lot of sense that Pulp yeah. Fiction would, of course, be the film that they would be referencing. <laughs> yeah, Pulp Fiction and All the President's Men. It's a weird mashup. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, it's great. Um, so, so I have I, I I really like this book in, in a lot of ways. As I'm sure it's come across. I have two issues with it. One, one. I'm, well, I'm not entirely sure whether it's, is is an issue. The other one, I suppose both of them in different ways. I'm not entirely sure whether they are issues or not. But I want to run them by. It. The first one is the one the part where William ends up meeting uh, Deep Bone in the like the multi-story horse car park, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> what? Why does he go there? He's just he's just out walking, and then suddenly the book sort of uh, just switches into a dis- like he happens to be walking by this uh, multi-story stable, and it switches into a description of how that was founded again. Another sort of Harry King like budding entrepreneur making a lot of money of a dirty, unrespectable job, and then suddenly William's in there, and Deep Bones talking to him, and I'm thinking, how did he like? <laughs> How did he know know how to meet him? I don't... I remember... Isn't that just after he's running away from Angua? Or is it the second time he meets him? Um, No, I... I feel like he's just uh, going out for a walk or something. And then just, you know, suddenly... I remember, literally, I went back and, like, reread the last page because I was thinking, what's the story here? Like, what... uh, yeah, here we are. Um, um, okay, he's at the breakfast table, and your man, uh, did Mr. Longshaft, the dwarf, uh, you know, ends up cutting up his egg to sort of as an implicit threat against the, the racist um, Mr. What's his name? Uh, Mr. Windling. Um, uh, he purchased his own copy of the Enquirer. Um, He's just sort of wandering around. He took a shortcut uh, through the stables in Creek Alley, and then we go into the description of Hobson's livery stable. William looked mm-hmm. around when a voice out of the gloom of the loose boxes said, excuse me, friend. And then he begins talking to him. I, I don't know, maybe I'm missing here, but I sort of felt like, you know, well, that was that was lucky for him, <laughs> that he ended up going to the... Uh, going to the yeah, I, th- I think it's just a... 
Deus Ex Machina of sorts, you know, that it just happens to work out that way and they needed to write it in somehow. Maybe the idea was, um, I don't know why William goes there. Like, I can understand uh, Gaspo following him somewhere and trying to lead him in. Like, does he lead him into the no, stable? No, I think he's just in there. Um, yeah, it just seems cl- like clumsy plotting in what's otherwise like a, quite a, um, you know, a, a, a well-plotted uh, book. I I couldn't tell you. I mean, yeah, it was it was a bit muddy, all right. Um I think you're right. I think it is just a bit like uh, clumsy plotting. It's not terrible. Like it doesn't ruin the book for me by any means. But and like, I didn't really think about it too much afterwards. It just seems like something that just happened. So which isn't ideal. But yeah, not a deal breaker. But yeah, you are right. One hundred percent right. It is a bit shoddy the way it's handled. All right. So I I don't think there's much more to it than that. That's just yeah. <laughs> it's just a bit of shoddy writing. That's all. And <laughs> uh, another thing is the fact that uh, like by virtue of this being an Ankh-Morpork book that isn't a watch book, like someone has to solve it other than the watch. And do you, do you feel as if, uh, how would you put it, like based that on... That wouldn't the, have happened? Yeah, yeah, like if, based uh, on the five watch books we've had so far, that it's sort of undercutting their credibility or maybe stretching our credulity as as readers of prior Discord books that they wouldn't have gotten to the bottom of this mystery themselves. Um, I mean, no, not so much, actually, because, I mean, one of the positive things about the Watchbooks is, yeah, they are a very capable, like, uh, force within the books that they're in, but none of the Watch members are without their flaws, except for Carrot, but (laughs) even even he's very gullible, so, you know, like, I mean, they are all portrayed as human, and they all go through trouble like in every single one of the watch books they always have trials and tribulations to get over and this just seems like something that happened to get past them so not get past them but i feel like if they were left to their own devices it's something they would have solved but uh the word happens to get there first because circumstances have allowed it um yeah yeah i suppose i i raise it because I, i've seen it used as a criticism of the book uh, by other um, people online to, to me mm. it's not such a big issue because I, I again seeing the, the new firmness this you know uh, how would you put it this um, spanner and the works of, of Ang Morpork who are upsetting the status quo it's like you know they're trying things slightly different to how the, the watch would um, in the same way that they don't know how to cope with the watch when the watch get, eventually do get Undertale maybe initially the watch isn't quite as ready to cope with them because they're, you know, they're trying something completely new. Um, and mm. William, while he's not new to the city, kind of being like a maybe a new protagonist and a new type of hero, as it were, as a journalist, is better equipped to track them down. Um, I also think that, like, the, the, the other uh, critique of her is that, like, oh, how did Veterinary let this happen uh, under his nose? But I think the idea that ties in wonderfully with the idea of him being uh, discredited and the power of words and news in that, you know, he may have been aware there was a conspiracy against him as he is in Feet of Clay. And he sort of thinks, you know, well, I'll be ready for it when it happens. But maybe what he doesn't account for here is that, like, 
the the way they frame him in many ways is so like ham-handed and unbelievable you know when, when William works out it will be physically impossible for him to get away with all the money he was found with but it doesn't really matter because mud sticks you know and wants to like that's the sort of plan of the conspiracy uh, conspiracists and I think that mm. they mention it themselves and when they're meetings they say oh this is so much better than you know killing him is uh, like framing him and discrediting him so I, I sort of see the, the fact that this is a kind of new strategy and a new way of doing things to me justifies why uh, characters like Vimes and Veterinary who we've seen kind of on top of things in their own stories aren't necessarily 100% on top of things here but I just thought it was worth bringing up because I've, I've heard people yeah, who seem to have a, a larger problem with it than I would Yeah, I mean, it is something that would uh, you could definitely um, critique the book about but, I mean, if you did that with every book like you know why didn't the watch solve it you'd have a fairly dull series after a while you know just like oh yeah why didn't the watch solve it uh there's a lot of reasons i think that it can work in this sense because personally i always feel that like vimes is able to triumph in so many of his stories because he's faced with obstacles and here he isn't faced with obstacles in a way you know not personal obstacles you know he's basically faced with uh something that kind of feels like his day-to-day we're not like privy to what's going on in his private life at this point so in many ways this is kind of his day-to-day job it's not a massive obstacle that he needs to burst through and break through if it was i'd feel a bit like ah why didn't vine solve this thing you know it's just his job and because he's not in a position where he needs to solve it to kind of you know reassure himself or prove his identity as like a copper or a good person or anything like that because of that the story allows for somebody else to intervene and not necessarily take the credit but to solve the mystery like so for me that's why that makes sense for veterinary um it's very hard not to think of veterinary as god in a lot of these books you know because he's always so well aware of everything um you know it's uh, I do get this, I mean, it's like uh, one thing that we were very lucky to discover in rereading these books is that Granny Weatherwax isn't a godlike figure like we always thought she was. She's a very human figure who just happens to be very good at what she does and sometimes get very lucky. Like she, But she is still human and often vulnerable. Veterinary doesn't so much get this treatment. There isn't really a point so far, as far as I can tell, where he seems like a human character and maybe that in itself is a flaw in his character you know maybe it's although even though he's very likable in how incredibly devious and cunning he is maybe he's not he's less interesting because he doesn't seem to have any major flaws Mm. yeah um it's certainly why i think you you could never write a book with him as the main character yeah it just wouldn't work at all in fact i think i remember um not a book but i remember Years ago, I think it was my brother was telling me that uh, this was after the first three Discworld games came out. He says, oh, they're making a fourth one and Veterinary's the main character. And I'm like, how the hell would that work? You know, you go around and you tell everybody, like, just talk at people. Oh, God, it'd be awful. (laughs) But um, yeah, I don't know. I think um, for Vimes, it makes sense for me anyway in this book. For Veterinary, less so, but... um, because he's so often the target or, you know, at least an important figure in most of the the Ankh-Morpork books, I don't know. I think that 
he just he he needs to be a victim in some ways and i feel like yeah that is a critique that you could make of this book that he sh- in, he sometimes should be made more vulnerable i know they say that the new firm says that uh oh veterinary was shocked for like a second but then he was like a snake and jumped up behind him and i'm like that's good i'm glad that they said that he was shocked and like he is human but i wish they'd gone a little further with it yeah, I, I I suppose he does. Um, the, the only times you really see him threatened in the in the books are from like loose cannons, so to speak. In that the conspiracy to bring him down the guards, guards. I mean, they do get the dragon earl in the city, but he seems happy enough to let it play out. You know, when Vimes visits him in his cell. Likewise, he's on top of the conspiracies in uh, Fida Clay and the, the war politicking in Jingo. But it's in a men, men at arms when it's just a crazy lone gunman who can you know shoot him and un- unsettle him and here while it is a conspiracy again uh, pin and tulip are very much uh loose cannons wild cards and uh, maybe it can be argued you know he's uh, can't anticipate their moves in, in the same way the the last uh, point I, I've, I've heard raised it's one um, i've kind of back and forth on is the part at the end when William chooses not to reveal that his father was in charge of the conspiracy and whether this mm. is a hypocritical move, you know, that uh, undercuts his commitment to the truth and his journalistic integrity, or whether it's another understandable um, human uh, move. What do you think? I actually sort of think it's both in a way. Like, it is hypocritical, but also. Uh, something very like it's something that i imagine a lot of journalists do they want to maintain their integrity as journalists they want to keep their career afloat but they obviously don't want to involve themselves personally in any of these stories i mean you hear so many times like people getting too involved and um you know it affect their affecting their lives negatively so it's a very grim note to end on in a way. I feel like this is a book that, even though I like it a lot, it ends in a very grim way. You know, it's it's not a nice ending per se. You know, it's because it kind of just lays out the the truth. The uh, It kind of just lays out like the facts about being a journalist, about newspapers and all that thing. And that's not a happy ending. You know, that's a very, very morally ambiguous area that we're kind of... Uh, concluding this story on so it's not like you can just say like and so they went on a date and had babies hooray no instead like you know they're going off and they're going to keep writing and unless all the newspaper stories are happy news stories (laughs) uh, you know that's not a good thing per se I mean it's not a bad thing it's good that they still have free speech and all that but it's not a happy ending and I think the fact that he keeps Lord the Word out of the limelight is a commentary on the fact that he is a morally ambiguous character. He's not necessarily, you know, a golden child or anything like that here. He is someone who is providing a service that most people will agree is, many people will agree is a necessary service. Most will agree that it's a positive service, but it is not without, it's, it's something that is very difficult to be morally unambiguous. You know, you can't just say, I'm a journalist, I report the news, and that's always going to be a good thing. Yeah. I think it's a very pointed commentary that it's not always going to be a good thing. There's always going to be compromises make. And I think I, I like that in the book. I really like the fact that he ends on that note that like, yes, for William as a human being, 
this makes sense for him to do because it's what most people would do. It would take a really cold-hearted person, including a journalist, to sell out their own father, even if he is a dick. Like, I mean, that's a really inhumane thing to do. So what it does here is show that William has a human side, but that's kind of problematic for people who run a newspaper. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's just the way it is. The, I mean, the so, lesson I mean, he seems to get out of uh, his confrontation with his father is that, like, he, his father says, you are the word, like, you know, and he's throughout the book critiqued this uh, bullying, overconfident um, streak in the uh, kind of imperious streak in the Duard family. And his lesson from all that seems to be, okay, well, I am, and I can't escape that, but I'm going to use it for good. Um, yeah, e- yeah. Even the headline of, or the headline, it's t- I'm thinking of Newspeak here, the title of this book, The Truth, not only refers to the, you know, abstract golden ideal of the truth that William seems to be chasing after, as opposed to the, the money-grubbing uh, of the Inquirer, um, but also, I, I imagine it's it's got to be a uh, reference to the um, famous Sun headline after the Hillsborough tragedy. Uh, I, I don't know, may not be aware of this, and perhaps some of our, our listeners won't too, so I'll uh, um, elaborate on what the Hillsborough uh, tragedy was an event in an FA Cup semi final in 1989 between Nottingham Forest and Liverpool, where 96 Liverpool fans were crushed to death. Uh, owing to bad stadium management, bad stewardship, and poor policing, um, mm. and actually today, yesterday was the 30th anniversary of uh, those events. So it's somewhat um, uh, appropriate, I suppose, that we, we should be discussing this book today. But uh, anyway, in the the wake of the event, the Sun released the story. Uh, fraudulently claiming that the uh, Liverpool fans have been like looting the bodies of the dead and pissing on policemen who are trying to help under the headline wow. "The Truth," simply uh, starkly, um, and it's gone down in in sort of I suppose British journalistic and certainly sporting folklore since then. There's been was inquiries for years and years, and I believe it was only really like maybe a, a couple of years ago that an inquiry at last definitively found that you know. The police had mishandled the situation, uh, and that the people who had died were completely innocent. And I mean, their families done incredible work and kind the of fighting for so many years, but to, to get justice and to get the truth. But to this day, uh, most shops in Liverpool won't stock or sell the Sun um, on the basis of that. Like the that headline, uh, it's still Britain's best-selling newspaper, and it's not sold in one of the biggest cities in Britain because of this, uh, like, you know, how uh, uh, insulting and hurtful and irresponsible that headline was. Uh, and the fact that it was, you know, the, the sun with their propensity for terrible puns and so on, uh, the fact that they just used such stark language of, you know, the truth, such a claim to being the definitive uh, take on the story, I, I think, like, made, rankled with people all the more and made it stick out. So, in in the title of this book, we have a reference to this, like, abstract and seemingly positive ideal, but we also have a reference to one of the most, like, hubristic, irresponsible, and monstrous um, misuses of journalism in, uh, mm. I suppose, like, you know, at that stage in recent um, uh, British history in the context that Terry Pratchett was writing. So, William's ethics and morals and goals are continually questioned 
throughout the throughout the whole mm. book, right up until including that confrontation with uh, his father and his decision to not to um, uh, not to give his name over to the watch. The one thing that I suppose rankles with me from it, I, I mean, I, I but absolutely agree what you're saying is um, like it makes him more more human, and it's we're not supposed to read it as a completely positive thing. I suppose the one thing that I, I don't like is that he refers to the hurt that would cause his mom and his sisters to uh, to be related to a felon, and it's like we never hear him thinking or talking about his yeah. the rest of his family. Like he, he thinks about the negative influence his dad has a lot, his brother who died. He mentions his sister to uh, Sakharissa when when he's giving her the key to their house to go get the go get the dress, but like there's never any sort of I suppose regret or. Um, you know, bittersweet remembrances of this family that he's that he's lost and maybe still cares for, despite his, uh, you know, difference of of opinions with his uh, with his dad. So that made it seem, I suppose, more of a. You can interpret it as like, like like a move born out of weakness, but understandable weakness. But that that made it seem more weaselly to me than maybe it should have. Like that, almost if he was using the idea of his mother and his sister to convince himself as to like why he's not doing this when we as a reader I don't know but you me as a reader I didn't really buy I'm like oh where what, why this sudden concern for your you know uh, the, the rest of your family we haven't really seen that yeah I agree with you 100% that was um, an awkward bit of writing that I think was see at that point I think we we were already accepting William the Word as a hu- a very humane person who was just you know despite the fact that he had a very problematic relationship with his father he still doesn't want to like throw his father under the bus like because that's something that very few people regardless of their relationship with their fathers want to do and so I think if he'd left it as it was it would have worked quite well but you're right I think um bringing in the mother and the sister was an overly sentimental mood like an attempt to make us empathize with him even more and it backfired it's it's not really it's not great i mean again i i when i was reading it it i kind of turned my nose up a little bit but i was at because even though i was reading it for the third time now i think i'm still invested in the story so while i was kind of oh that's a bit meh I kept going and I was, I glossed over it relatively quickly. Now that you're bringing it up again, it does make me think, yeah, it's not. Like, there are some examples in here that are a little muddy, uh, no doubt about that. Um, it, But like you said, it's you, you the way you described it as um, <laughs> actually using a language that I somewhat associate with newspapers. It rankled with it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Is there but, a yeah, newspaper no. short, all right. It, it is something that um, it's it's doesn't bother me too much, but you know these occurrences where the writing is a little muddy does add up a little bit. So while this is definitely, I I, I think you'll probably agree, this definitely is in the higher tier of Discworld books when it comes to how smart it is and mm-hmm. how it deals with its central messages and themes. It's, it's a very smart book, one of the smartest ones I'd say. However, it's not the best example of his writing. I'd say. This is like, you know, when we compare it to, I think number one on our list at the moment is. I was about to say, do you want to get to ranking it now? 
We we should do. Um, yeah, actually, I mean, while we're here, I mean, I was going to say... <laughs> while we're here, as, as opposed... While, while we're here, I like mean, we, we've recorded we fin- this entire yeah, podcast. Finish a podcast, so and well. then maybe, maybe next week I'll like it. <laughs> but um, the top one that we have is Lords and Ladies, and that was a book that, well, I think in terms of... Uh, concept and intelligence it might not rank as high it was just it was the epitome of his writing it was rock solid in terms of pacing characterization narrative everything this book doesn't have that it has some mm-hmm. great characters great characterization um, almost across the board i think there's one or two examples we've mentioned here where it's not perfect but some great characterization. The narrative is a bit fumbling. It's very much a concept novel as opposed to a narrative novel. Um, we spend a lot of time in the newsroom in this, so you know it's yeah, uh, it's 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 not like as powerful. It's not pushing forward like with great momentum. So it muddles a little bit. But again, like we've discussed for the last two hours. Uh, it's very smart in the things that it's saying and it's still very, very relevant, which is kind of astonishing considering it's 20 years later and talking about something that should be seen as quite dated in our modern era. So um, do you want me to read the list out loud? I've, I've I've f- sorry, you probably saw me oh. like like gazing away from you on the yeah, scope window there. I've, I've, got it out my, I've got it up my phone. Um, I'm trying to... I, I, I think we're it's getting so big at this point if we if we read it out every the full thing top to bottom every episode will be another <laughs> ten minutes longer. But this one's difficult because most of the time with a sub series we kind of like look around to its kind of fellows, you know, like look at the other witch ones, yeah. the other watch ones, the other insulin ones. This one doesn't really have any. Uh, I mean, maybe the watch ones are its nearest cousins. Um, like like for me, about, listen. I- yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah. Um, I was just going to pick one at random. Okay, so I was going to pick... I have them in two columns. We've got 24 books, right? Yeah. So let's see if we can put it in the top half or the bottom half. So Witches Abroad or Carpe Jugulum? Jugulum. <laughs> Where do you think it would rank in terms of that? Um, I think it goes above either of them. If it goes above it, I wouldn't say it's far above it because... I'd say I I definitely put it above Carpe Juggalum. Um Witches Abroad I'm a little hesitant on because that was one of those that's um, Witches Abroad is almost the polar opposite of this book. Absolutely electric writing, but not a very smart book that just kind of pokes at like uh narrative conventions and storytelling more than anything else. Although in a way it's kind of somewhat similar in a way then. Um It probably is better though. Yeah, yeah, I, I would think which abroad is just very. Uh, it's really fun, but it's very uneven. With you know, you have a lot of wheel spinning until they get to Genoa when the plot starts. A lot of that wheel spinning is very fun, but it, you know, for being rootless about it, it's like well, there's that kind of I don't know if you call it a plot hole, but a structural failing with how William ends up meeting up with Deep Bone in the stable. Other than that, this one is. You know, I think quite like neatly plotted, and you're you're right. You do spend a fair amount of time in the newsroom, but the development of the newspaper is as much part of the plot here as the conspiracy to uh, frame veterinary. So, you know, that that mm. stuff was certainly gripping me when I was reading it, and uh, I, I, yeah. I I didn't feel as if it was kind of getting in the way of the the story or anything like that. Yeah, I'd probably place it above. I've got a, a very soft spot for the witches, but I can't really deny how 
important and relevant this book is like i'd have to put that above a book that's just a good romp so uh, let's jump up a little bit then let's compare it to mort um it's you know in, in a way they, they do have a, an odd thing in common and that like i think when when we done mort i, I said it was like a quantum leap forward for the disc world and uh, maybe this isn't as much of a leap forward in terms of quality but it's a similar leap forward in terms of uh you know like mort felt feels like he's no longer just kind of riffing on a load of dungeons and dragon style fantasy tropes it's, it's maybe mm. the first one that feels like that and this is really cementing that industrial revolution period of the disc world so they're both yeah. i suppose harbingers of uh of the direction of the series in that way um i think you're gonna to have to make a call on this one by yourself because i'm almost always going to put mort ahead of almost anything because even now like i'm looking at ones ahead of it and i'm thinking uh i think the truth might be better than that but i think almost nothing is better than mort even though we've ranked it at number nine um like that is one of my favorite stories ever and again very good at storytelling, very well paced, great narrative. Um, I know you've had some issues with the narrative and characters before. I think it's great, but I, I still think this is a more important book. So I'd probably rank it a little higher. Yeah, not much yeah, higher. likewise. Um, so Masquerade is just above Mort. Ooh, uh, Masquerade, we loved. Yeah. I really loved Masquerade. Um, yeah. Okay, just just for the time being, what what about Small Gods? Because Small Gods is your Mort. Yeah, I'd so. say for me, it's it's definitely not better than Small Gods. But uh, again, that's the, you know that's something we'll probably disagree on. Well, I mean, we do have to factor in how readable it is as well. So, I mean, to be honest with you, I I don't think like Small Gods would be. I wouldn't put it above Small Gods either. Is the oh, thing really? because. Oh, no, genuinely, because I know, I know I put more to both Small Gods, but um, the thing is, Small Gods is a... Like, one thing I will always give Small Gods over Mort is it's a much smarter book. It has very intelligent things to say about belief and religion. So that's why... And because it's much more readable than The Truth is as well. I mean, even though The Truth is very readable, I'd still put Small Gods above it. So I don't think it's above Small Gods. Okay. Masquerade. Um, I love Masquerade. Again, I'm trying to take into account um, its intelligence and how exciting it was to read. Yeah, uh, I can't believe I can't believe I'm saying this, but where I'd probably put it would be below Masquerade, but above Mort. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think I think yeah. Masquerade's a very quietly intelligent book. I think it uses the characters of the the witches very well. Um, I mean, it's another Ankh Morpork book, so it's it's kind of a, a reasonable point of comparison. Um, yeah. Can I just double check with you though? But um, Mena, I just noticed Men at Arms down there. Would you say this is? Yeah, this is probably better than Men at Arms. I think just about. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, because Men, I remember Men at Arms. Funnily enough, at the time when we were reading that, we thought, "Wow, this is like one of the most intelligent things Terry Pratchett has ever said." But even now, just looking back, Men at Arms seems a. Not necessarily quaint, but in comparison to how far we've come since then, it doesn't seem as revolutionary. Mm-hmm, yeah, well, the, the, so, the bar has been set very high. I remember Men yeah. at Arms as being very uneven uh, in in like certain you know aspects of it, like uh, the the dog skill subplot not really connecting with the main plot, uh, like only doing so thematically and um, 
I, I remember I, I was unsatisfied with the gun, the gun's effect on cruises. It, 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 that wasn't as, as big of a deal for you, but I, I, I remember our men at arms were being really long because we had a lot to say. <laughs> but mm. I, I, I can't remember exactly why we uh, settled down on like. I, th- I think the reason we were so blown away from it was because it was the first time it had really tackled racial, racism mm-hmm. in it. And it did it like it was at the time it was like, wow, this is fascinating. This is the first time that Terry Pratchett has really sat down and focused on a theme. And it was really it was really well drawn out. So, I mean, there are issues with the pacing, the narrative, that kind of thing. But because of its themes and its focus, I think that's why we gave it to it. So, um, yeah, although it kills me a little bit to add yet another one above Mort, I kind of have to give it to give this place this one to more or I have to give the truth just over more to- yes oh it kills me to do that it really does like I was convinced that when I came into this I'd keep Mort up on top but would you say it can't be done mortifies you and on that note we are going <laughs> to get the so the truth new, new, new is number Colin, nine. the truth is <laughs> it does mortify me <laughs> Radio Mort poor in Pun rumpus. Um, okay, so new number nine, that, the truth above Mort, below masquerade. Um, yeah, I think it's a good place for it. Yeah. It's it's a weird one because I appreciate this. Uh, my head appreciates this book so much. My heart, not so much. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's a real thinking mm-hmm. man's book, and like you have to appreciate for how smart it is. But there's a lot about it. That I'm kind of like, uh, I wouldn't be too pushed coming back to it. It's it's a good book. It's just, it's not the most likable book. Even though it is likable compared to many other books. Well... Yeah, okay, so yeah. number nine. That, that being that, um, thanks so much for, for listening, for sticking with us after our uh, long spell of, of, of hibernation. Um, I'm not going to make any promises as to how regularly we'll we'll get the episodes out. Devil fools with the best laid plans. There, we'll try and keep on on some kind of a schedule, but maybe it won't be quite as um, uh, we won't be quite as prolific as we were in the in the past. But yeah, thank thank you so much for listening. It's great to be back. Yeah, and hopefully we'll be able to entertain you again some point in 2019. Uh, fingers crossed <laughs> hopefully we'll be back again semi-regular so we'll see how we get on goodbye thank you everyone bye